Luggage and passenger screening is a complicated applied science. An idea has to be verified before it can be built into prototype equipment for testing and eventual production. For instance, at an airport, determining whether the basic technology can reliably detect what it's supposed to, such as a dangerous chemical, that's the function of the Independent Test and Evaluation Division of the Transportation Security Laboratory, or TSL. The lab is operated by the Science and Technology Directorate of the Homeland Security Department. In the second of this week's series of interviews on location at TSL in Atlantic City, I spoke with the Test and Evaluation Director, Lee Spanier. He pointed out that his crew operates at a stage ahead of where technology moves to production. My division performs the final exam that supports the decision-making for acquisition and deployment of TSA. And systems come in for certification testing, and uh, we conduct that test. I guess there is a gap sometimes between what sounds like a really great scientific idea for purposes of passenger and cargo and luggage screening, but it doesn't always translate into the scale and reliability that's needed in operation. And so it sounds like you determine, your group determines, yes, this is a good-to-go TSA. You can buy it and rely on it? Well, let me clarify. Uh, I don't do the what's called the operational suitability assessment. I do the conformity assessment for detection and only detection. So that's the primary objective of this system. It's a screening system. So we measure its detection capability, not any of the other attributes such as reliability, maintainability, whether the UPS works. Got it. All right. So give us some examples of things that need to be detected and how you find out that if they can be reliably detected. Well, just as a matter of practice, TSA defines the detection standard. That detection standard defines exactly what they expect the system to detect and What we do is we take that detection standard and convert it into something called the challenge matrix that lists out each of the scenarios, whether the target is in the bag or on the body or in a bottle or in, you know, any other circumstances. And those scenarios are presented back to TSA. They then authenticate that as an accurate portrayal of their detection standard. And once they've given us the go-ahead, we turn that around and make that into a full test. And so a typical test could have thousands of those scenarios. Give us an example. Well, an object concealed from view on your body, uh, perhaps uh, on your chest, Mm -hmm. on your back, on your ankle. Those would be examples of a target concealed on your body. Right. So you need to verify then that that is detectable and can be detected. Yes. Or in bags. That could be the object is concealed in uh, a ski boot. And does the mission extend to knowing what it is that is there or just that something is there that needs further screening? Ah, well, it depends on the system and the CONOPS. So I I can't give you all the details because I don't know exactly how DSA does it, but I can tell you that for an AIT system, the passenger screening, that's the advanced advanced imaging technology, technology, thank you very much, it uses that as an anomaly. It, It is not looking to sort threat items from benign items, it is looking for items that are anomalous to your body. And so it requires a pat-down for resolution. Well, what is left to determine? Because it seems like for years they've been able to tell if there's something in your pocket or in your breast pocket or in your back pocket or in your shoe. So what are some of the challenges you're looking Uh, at? Well, the challenges that the TSA, and remember, I'm just uh, downstream. I do the quality assurance piece of this. Right. The developers 
are the manufacturers, and they're responding to both our headquarters, Science and Technology, and TSA's sponsorship of their systems. The requirements that I can talk about that are changing are seeking to maintain that detection capability, Mm -hmm. but lower the false alarm rate. The false alarm rate is the rate in which resolution is required for by hand pat down. All right, so every time they uh, there's an alarm that requires a pat down touch sure. a touch rate in effect. Mm-hmm. Okay, so right now one of the challenges is to reduce that touch rate, and that has been reduced significantly too, hasn't it, over the last several years? It has been shrinking. Uh, the latest technology, which is being trial deployed, has a very significant reduction in that false alarm rate. Right. And what are some of the technologies that can reduce it? If something's in your pocket, it's in your pocket. What would cause a false positive, say, of something not in your pocket but showing up in your pocket? The technology that is changing, as far as I understand, for these baseline systems, which are in millimeter wave, are based upon advanced image processing and machine learning. So uh, many of those techniques are being applied and with great effect. The same can be said for the computer tomography systems. There's a reduction in false alarm. And so your job is to say, yes, this really is the case because we've independently tested that system that someone else has said, yes, this reduces false positives. Because you don't develop the false positive detection system or the avoiding false positive. You just independently verify that it works Yeah. So uh, the vendors will come in and claim that they've met the standards and specifications that TSA has defined, and we will evaluate those claims. All right. And just to be clear, I defined target scenarios. So that's one set of tests for detection. Um, But the other half of the coin is uh, false alarm. And we measure the rate when alarms are occurring when in the stream of commerce or a simulated stream of commerce where there are or should not be any targets detected. Got it. And so what form does your work take? I mean, what kind of equipment, gear, and skills are needed to be able to test these things? Well, it depends on the test service lines. I've got seven different test service lines. So in general, most of what we do is create targets, uh, concealed targets. We'll acquire bags and put in the proper clutter mix in those bags and store those bags for use in testing. For passenger screening, we will acquire temporary hire individuals. We'll train them up. There's a series of uh, qualifications that we obtain for them. Then they're on call for testing. So those are the examples of the types of material and personnel that we use. And, And there's hundreds of mock passengers that we use for our tests. Yeah. So you have to develop the test methodologies then too, right? Yeah, of course. So that's using the equipment that's being considered. Don't you need that piece of equipment to be able to test that? Of course. So let me back up. So when TSA issues a solicitation, the very first step is the vendor, the manufacturer will submit a a certification data package Mm -hmm. uh, that provides evidence of compliance. Um, And there's some prerequisite things, uh, certainly electrical safety we don't evaluate, so we require on third-party, third-party certifications uh, as a prerequisite to us. Um, We'll do an audit of that certification data package, and if it looks like they have sufficient evidence, then we'll welcome them in. They'll install one or more of those units in our laboratory. We'll conduct a test readiness review. We'll get all the preparations together and execute a test, and it could be as little as one to two weeks or, in some cases, can take six to eight weeks to conduct a test. And do you send them away disappointed sometimes? I mean, does the stuff generally work when it gets to you? It's interesting. I would say there are very few manufacturers that passed on their first trial. 
All right, it required a, a couple trials. I think there might have been one vendor that passed on its first attempt. So, yes. So you're like the fruit of the loom guy. It doesn't reduce false positives. So Lee Spanier says it reduces false positives. Well, it's, I, I'm not the I'm not the authority. I just conduct the test. And just to be clear, I don't issue the certification letter. I execute the test and make the recommendations to TSA. They issue the letter. Got it. All, All right. right. And. And just the people that are in your group, what are the types of skills or education requirements? What, are they, what types of people do this work? Now, I don't mean the test subjects, but the people designing the tests. That's an important question that you ask because they're physicists, they're engineers, and they're chemists um, because of the range of test equipment that we're uh, evaluating. So, for example, chemists would be involved in the Raman scatter spectroscopy for bottle liquid scanners. Trace chemists are also involved in the explosive trace detectors, which are IMS, uh, ion mobility spectrometers. Physicists and engineers are involved in CT scanners, X-ray-based computed tomography, and millimeter wave AIT scanners. So a lot of technologies come to bear here. Yes, certainly. What else do we need to know? We do other things for other customers. One of them is we do lots of special excursion tests, things that pop up, you know, individuals that say, hey, how come I'm getting patted down all the time? Why is it? Why am I alarming? I don't have any targets on me. And they have us investigate that. We lead uh, IEEE image quality standards committees. So about half of these are image quality systems or imaging systems, and we've come up with techniques to monitor the quality control of those images. We also work very closely with other nations that want to do the same type of certification processes. So the European Union and other countries in Eastern Asia would like to stand up their own certification processes, so we do something which TSA refers to as international harmonization harmonizing standards and harmonizing test methods. Lee Spanier is manager of the Independent Test and Evaluation Division at the Transportation Security Laboratory. Tomorrow, we'll hear about how equipment gets its final certification to install. Find all of the TSL interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. 
And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit, uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give, uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but, but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I, I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That, that, you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so, uh, joyful and and uh, yeah, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at Special Olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, 
I, I can't imagine that won't help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.